Sam, we appreciate your confession, but nobody in the sanctuary knew that you had led us in the wrong measure, man. So I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. Hello, Miss Ella. Exodus chapter 12, as we continue to make our way through this narrative of God's deliverance of his people. We have concluded from the text, if you will, this first section of this narrative of God's call to Moses, his promise that through Moses he's going to redeem his people. We've seen the rebellion of of Pharaoh, promises that have not been fulfilled. And this plague narrative has come to a conclusion with chapter 11. And now, beginning here in chapter 12, this redemption narrative, God's deliverance of the nation of Israel, his bringing them out of bondage is taking place. And of course, that narrative begins with what we understand to be this 10th plague. It ends with the plagues. And here in this text of Scripture, we have come to understand this narrative as the Passover. Now, in just a few weeks, as Christians, we're going to celebrate what? Resurrection Day. Easter. Okay. Some of you might know that there's a connection between Easter and Passover, right? Okay, just a brief time out. This does not count against my minutes for the sermon, okay? You guys know that we lay out sermon text months and months and months and months in advance. I only wish that I was smart enough to have constructed the flow of sermons in such a way that we would begin the Passover narrative right before Easter and conclude the Passover, the Passover narrative right after Easter. I wasn't smart enough to construct that, though. I do, however, find it very interesting that we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at this very important theological foundation for what you and I come to understand as Jesus, our Passover lamb, who was sacrificed on our behalf. And so here in Exodus chapter 12, we learn from this text of Scripture that God supernaturally, God supernaturally delivers His people from enslavement as they follow Him by faith. God supernaturally delivers His people from enslavement as they follow Him by faith. Here in this first movement of this narrative in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, we see God reminding the nation of Israel that they need a Savior. You understand that Moses is writing the text of Scripture not during the march to freedom. Moses is writing this text following their freedom, and he's using this text as a reminder to the nation of Israel to the people of God that they needed redemption. They needed delivering from their enslavement to Pharaoh in Egypt. Listen at the word of the Lord, Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. 
And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for your lamb. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the entire assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. If you're ancient Israel and you're in the middle of this narrative, perhaps you are wondering exactly what God's purpose in setting forth what seems to be some type of new event that seems to be celebratory in nature. Whatever it is going to be, it's going to be such that it's going to set for the nation of Israel the way in which they live their lives, the flow of their lives. It's going to control their lives. It's going to be the start of their calendar. If you're ancient Israel and you're hearing these words for the first time, for you've been enslaved for the last 430 years, you've not necessarily been living by a calendar that was given to you by Yahweh. You've been living every moment of your life by calendar, a demand, a command that has been set by Pharaoh. You might even say along the way here that in some measurable way, the nation of Israel is completely demoralized. They probably have little to no concept whatsoever of of time itself. They just know that they march to the orders of Pharaoh. And now here Yahweh, their God, is setting for them a new pattern of life. Look how this narrative begins. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron. Now who were Moses and Aaron? Moses and Aaron, we will learn as we continue to read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we're going to learn that Moses and Aaron are going to be Levitical priests. They're in the line from which all the priests for the nation of Israel are to come. And what are the priests in the nation of Israel to do? They are to be the leaders. They are to lead the nation of Israel in right worship of God. So isn't it interesting, at the very beginning of this narrative, we've not yet learned, if we're reading the Bible chronologically, we don't know the narrative, we don't know that Moses and Aaron are going to be Levitical priests. We do know that because we've read the narrative. But it's interesting as this narrative begins, for what God is ultimately going to reveal to the nation of Israel through this narrative of Passover is the right worship of God. And from the very beginning, Moses is narrating for us, if you will, 
He's introducing for us, if you will, Moses and Aaron who will lead the people of Israel in the right worship of God. And notice the importance of this right worship of God. As I noted just a few moments ago, it's going to control the very narrative, the very flow of the nation of Israel's life from here on out. The Bible says that this is going to be a period of time that shall be the first month for you. So whatever's going to take place here, this is going to be a new start, if you will. This is going to be a new beginning. Why a new beginning? Because they are on a movement toward redemption. They are on a movement toward being delivered from their sin. And there is no greater joy in the life of one who has been enslaved than that moment in which they celebrate their freedom. God is leading his people to freedom. So God says, this month of freedom, this start of freedom is going to be your first month. And notice how specific the Lord is here. The beginning of your months, it shall be the first month of the year for you. It's interesting, just in the construct of the Hebrew Bible as well in this narrative, this will not be the last time that the nation of Israel finds herself in enslavement, will it? Years later, the nation of Israel is going to find herself in Babylon, and Babylon is going to be for Israel much like Egypt was for Israel. They're going to be enslaved. They're going to be worshiping false gods. They're going to be exposed to idols and to a worldview that is contrary to that which God has given to them. And you might remember the text of Scripture as Ezra is delivering the nation of Israel out of slavery and back into freedom. Do you remember what month that was for the nation of Israel when they left Babylon? Ezra chapter 7 tells us that in the month in which Ezra began the journey with the people of God out of Babylon, guess what month it was? The first month. This first month will serve as a reminder throughout this narrative of God's relationship with his people, of the importance of what God does in redeeming people. Friends, if you're here this morning and your life has been redeemed by Christ, if your life has been transformed by the power of the gospel, no, you don't get to start a new year. You don't get at 40 years old when you come to faith in Christ, you don't start all over and say, this is year number one. So when somebody meets you, they say, how old are you? Well, I'm 65, but I'm really 40. It doesn't, mark that, it doesn't work that way, does it? But we see God setting down markers throughout his relationship with his people. We see God setting down markers as a reminder for his people of the work that he's accomplished in his life. And yes, friends, in a very real way, on that day, at that moment, at that time in which God redeemed your life, just like the nation of Israel, a new journey has begun for you. Do you remember that moment? Do you remember that time? 
Is it a time of rejoicing for you as you, re- as you reflect back on God's work in your life? Is it a stone of remembrance, if you will? Do you remember that moment in which God transformed and changed and redeemed your life? God for the nation of Israel is saying, mark it down. Write it down so that you might remember, so that you might pay attention. In verse 3, we get the first mention of this word edah from the Hebrew, congregation occurs in our Hebrew Bibles. It's the word from uh, which we even derive our understanding of ecclesia in the New Testament, which we understand in English to be church. And so in the narrative up until this point, the nation of Israel has been referred to as Israel or as the Hebrews. God is the God of the Hebrews. And now in verse 3, look what God is doing. When God is bringing his people together, when he's providing them redemption, what does he do? He he places them into groups of people that worship God. He places them in this congregation. And not only is the calendar going to be a regular reminder for what God has done for them, but every time the nation of Israel gathers in this congregation, it will be a reminder of the salvation that God has provided for them. And friends... So too is it for you and me when we gather as the people of God, when we gather as the church, when we gather as the redeemed. This moment is designed by our Creator to be a reminder to you and me of exactly what God has done for us. It's a moment of rejoicing. It's a moment of remembering. It's a moment of confessing. It's a moment of being encouraged in our faith and our hope with the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell all the congregation of Israel. Now, how large is the nation of Israel at this point in the narrative, you think? You can answer. What do you think? How many million, Craig, did you say? Three million? I heard two million. There are a lot of people. A million to two million people. I mean, they've been down in, in Egypt for 430 years. We remember the narrative from the very beginning of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 1, do you remember how the narrative begins? The children of Israel were to do what? Exodus chapter 1. Go back to Exodus chapter 1 with me. And look at, this, look at this narrative as God reminds the nation of Israel in chapter 7. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. Where does that come from? It comes from Genesis, and we see it repeated several times in Genesis. It's one of the reasons as we turn the page from the death of Joseph into the narrative of Exodus that we know God is ultimately controlling the narrative in his people. We're seeing that God's command to his people to be fruitful and multiply is continuing. Nothing can stop God's promises to his people, Moses is telling us. So we come here to Exodus chapter 12. There's one to two million people. There are large gatherings. So the Bible says that Moses gathered all the congregation 
Now this word edah, as it's mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, occurs in, uh, over a hundred times with a few different meanings. For example, it literally could mean the totality of the nation of Israel gathering. So all one million to two million people. Have you ever tried to talk without amplification to one million people? Give it a try. It could also mean just the males of a certain age as being the entire gathering or congregation of the nation of Israel. It could also be a reference to the gathering of those who were tasked with overseeing the various collection or tribes of people with inside the nation of Israel. So perhaps what's taking place here is Moses has gathered together these several thousand leaders with inside this group of people to tell them exactly what God has told them so that they collectively can prepare the people to rightly obey and respond to God, the congregation of Israel. They're going to meet on the 10th day of that first month. And when they meet on that 10th day of the first month, they're to make a selection. They're to make a selection of a male goat or lamb. If some of you are reading certain translations, it might say kid, but we have tended our English language to say lamb. I mean, imagine reading John, behold the kid of God who takes away the sins of the world. That doesn't sound quite as good as behold the lamb, right? So they're together. This lamb or this goat that is perfect without any blemish. And they're to do this in the collection of families. If you're a large family, you can consume one whole lamb. If you're not a large family, you're going to have to share with your neighbors. God is very specific in how he is commanding the nation of Israel to worship him in this way and to remember that they desperately need a Savior. And you're going to keep this lamb that's without blemish, a male, a year old, you're going to keep it until the 14th day. So you go pick it on the 10th, and on the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation, of, with, with the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, you're going to kill your lamb at dusk, at twilight. So here, a reference to the totality. Who was to participate this way in the worship of God? All the people of God. And when are they to do it? On the 14th day, and they're going to kill their lamb. Jesus, as he's given instructions to his disciples, and not just instructions uh, to his disciples, when he's celebrating with his disciples this Passover celebration in Luke chapter 22, Listen to how Luke gives us this editorial about this celebration of the Passover. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. It was this 14th day after, after waiting. There was a sense of 
preparation and intentionality that had to go into this process for the nation of Israel as they reflected on this right worship of God. And here in this text, God is reminding the nation of Israel that they too so desperately need a Savior that can only be provided through what we will understand to be (coughs) as a sacrifice of a perfect, spotless lamb. But notice what happens in this narrative as we continue here in in verse 7. In verses 7 through 11, God is very specific now. He declares to his people that he will indeed deliver them through blood sacrifice. This is how they're going to receive their freedom through a blood sacrifice. So verse 7, then they shall take some of the blood that they've gotten from the slaughter of the lamb, and they shall put it on two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, whatever, take, whatever is taking place in this narrative, whatever conclusions that we ultimately want to make about this narrative, to whom does this narrative belong? Who is leading the charge? Who is standing as a primary player in this story of redemption? Who is the primary actor? Who is the director? Moses and Aaron communicate to the people. As you might understand, I can only imagine after 430 years of being enslaved, you know nothing else. You don't even really know how to function outside of this enslavement. You have in no way an, your own identity. Your identity is caught up solely and, and completely and totally in what Pharaoh has identified you as. And by the way, friends, that's also true of us apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we have no anchor for our souls. And so for too many of us apart from Christ, our lives are one complete, total train wreck to train wreck to train wreck because our identity has not been set. We're constantly seeking the approval of another, or we're allowing the world or the system of the world, the ideology of the world, to identify exactly who we are, and we're not allowing God. And this is the problem for the nation of Israel. Pharaoh has identified them, and and here in this text, God is saying, no, I'm now completely, totally and control, and in case you miss it, whatever is going to be taking place here, this is the Lord's Passover. 
And see, friends, because it is the Lord's, because he's the creator of the heavens and the earth, because he's the one who has made you and made me, he and he alone has the right to set the trajectory of what it means to find salvation. I don't get to set that. The nation of Israel didn't get to set that. They don't get to control the narrative. They don't even get to control when the narrative is going to take place. It's going to be in the first month in which you celebrate it. This is when it's going to happen. This Passover belongs to the Lord. And aren't you thankful that not only in the Old Testament, but even now, God is very specific in how he communicates to you and me how we're to worship him and how we are, and how we are to be made right with him. See, friends, God has set the standard and the means through which and by which you and I find this same redemption. For the nation of Israel, it was through the sacrifice of a spotless, perfect, young lamb or goat. But for you and me, right relationship with God is found exclusively through the sacrifice of God's one and only unblemished, perfect Son, Jesus. And Jesus, bearing the wrath of God upon Calvary's cross, sheds his blood for you and for me. And the Bible gives us the means or the path through which you and I have that blood applied to our hearts. For the nation of Israel, the Bible says that they would have to take that blood and they would have to mark it on the two doorposts and over the lintel. And for you and me, the gospel call is, would you believe? Would you come to God through Christ by faith? Friends, there is no other pathway to God than through Jesus by faith. I don't care how hard you work. I'm not concerned with how you might think you can get there. The Bible in the New Testament, just like in the Old Testament, tells us exactly how we get to God. We get to God through Christ by faith. Faith is God's means for placing you and me in a right relationship with God. Has that blood of Christ been applied to your heart through faith and by faith? Have you repented of your sins, responded to God rightly and trusting him? This is what God is calling the nation of Israel to do. Apply the blood from the sacrifice so that you might find deliverance.
But notice in this narrative, not everyone will find deliverance. Not everyone is gonna find right relationship with God. Look at verse 12. We learn from this text that God is going to judge Pharaoh and Egypt for rejecting his word. And likewise, friends, God will reject all who reject his word. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment I am Yahweh. God not only sets a standard for what it means to be made right with God, but God also sets a standard for you and me of what it also means to be rejected by God. And rejection by God for Pharaoh comes and for Egypt comes in that they have rejected obedience to the word of God. They have pledged their lives in obedience to these false, dead, worthless idols, to an ideology, to a worldview that provides no salvation. And look what God says. It's not only a statement against Pharaoh's life. It's not only a statement against Egypt's life. God is saying, I'm going to completely, totally destroy the entire worldview and construction upon which the nation of Israel's, the nation of Egypt's worldview has been constructed. God is not living his life in competition with other deities seeking to have war, and whoever happens to win that battle can claim supremacy. No, God reigns supreme. And here, God completely, totally destroys, rejects, judges Pharaoh and Egypt. for rejecting his very word. And friend, this is a statement of truth that not only applies to Pharaoh and to Egypt, it applies equally to you and me and your neighbors and your children and your best friend. Whoever they are that live their lives separated from God and Christ. Would you hear this statement of judgment today? And as Pastor Travis pled earlier in our service, would you trust in Christ? Would you believe in Jesus? For notice how this narrative ends in this last scene. God, while he rejects those who reject him, He will protect those who walk in obedience to him. God protects his people. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you 
to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. See, friends, when we worship God rightly, when we come to God rightly, when we walk into the deliverance and redemption and forgiveness that God has given to us, look at the incredible benefits that God gives. This isn't only a narrative about God's acts and from years and years and years and thousands of years ago. No, it's, it's a statement of God's acts even to this day. This is how God is responding to you and me, those who by faith have trusted in Jesus. This is how God responds to his people. God, through the sacrifice of Christ, is always and forever protecting and providing for his people. Have you received God's provision? Are you living this morning according to God's command in this way? Are you receiving the blessing of walking rightly with God? For when we do, we hear those words of Jesus. Don't be anxious. Seeing Christ, God provides for us. He calms our hearts, and he calms our minds. We hear the words of Jesus, come to me, all you who are heavy burdened. And what will Christ do for us? He and he alone will give you rest. He will provide for you. He will protect you. He will be to you as your God. God continually, only making provision for his people. As we think about this narrative, it becomes formative for us as we think about the ultimate sacrifice that Christ, that God through Christ will make on our behalf. Go back to verses three and through seven, uh, three through six, seven, eight, nine. 10, 11, and listen and read again God's preparation for this action of what his people should do. And it reminds us that God has made preparation for you and for me in a very similar way. How many lambs were each family to choose? One. How many lambs would be broken for each family? One. How many lambs would be given for unity, for right relationship with God? One. This narrative, friends, sets the pattern for you and for me and what we are to be looking for in a Messiah. And friends, God has provided that one perfectly prepared sacrifice for you and for me. And that one sacrifice 
Jesus gave his one body for you and me, and that one body was broken for you and me, and that one body broken for you and for me placed us into one body, the body of Christ through which we have unity and communion with one another. There is no other sacrifice than the sacrifice of Jesus that has accomplished that on our behalf. And what type of sacrifice was Jesus? Look back to verse 5 in your Bibles of Exodus chapter 5. What type of sacrifice was required? A lamb without what? Blemish. Listen at Peter as he reflects upon the person of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Why would Jesus have to be one who had an impeccable journey or life? Why would Jesus have to be one without sin who could not sin? So that he could be that perfect sacrifice on your behalf and on my behalf. What was the purpose for God's judgment? Do you remember that phrase back in verse 12? For I will judge all the gods of Egypt. Friends, as we think about this text, there's not only been one perfect preparation and sacrifice made, we also learn from this text of Scripture that one of God's means of judgment is evangelism. What was God's intention with the nation of Israel and the nation of Egypt? We've already seen this communicated. I'm not going to go back through the 10 passages that we've looked at already in this narrative. 10, 11, 12 times we've seen God say that He wants the nation of Israel to know that He's God, but He also wants the nation of Egypt to know that He is God. And sometimes we look at this concept of judgment and we seek to erase this idea of judgment thinking that wrath is, is not a way to appeal to the world. Nobody wants to follow that Jesus. But friends, if you erase the judgment of God, you erase the very foundation upon which the necessity of redemption is required. God's judgment in this text of Scripture is used as a means for evangelism. And I might submit to you this morning, as you think about rightly proclaiming the gospel, I don't think that we can fully, completely share the gospel narrative apart from people understanding, apart from Christ, they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They stand under the condemnation and judgment of God. And friends, that's not a place that you want to be. It's a place of 
separation. It's a place of rejection. It's a place of exile. This narrative of judgment in this text is seeking to turn people from bad news. And what do we call the gospel? The good news. We turn them from the bad news to the good news. And the good news is Jesus saves. And lastly, this was not how I intended to close this sermon, but I forgot this point just a few moments ago. So we're going to go back to it. And I believe it'll be a perfect closing. Look within your Bibles in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 6. Jesus is, has called, by now in this, in this narrative, he's called the, his disciples to him. He is now, in chapter 6, going to begin his mission of sending his disciples out to proclaim this good news, to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And look beginning in verse 7 of chapter 6. And listen at the language that is used here, and I'll point it out to you in just a moment. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to, notice, take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, wear sandals, and not, and, and not put on two tunics. And he said, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as testimony against them. Jesus is giving his disciples instruction for how they are to go out and proclaim this gospel, this good news of Jesus, which is a message of a new exodus. And look at the paradigm. Are they to do this mission with all of this baggage holding them down? The narrative, much like the narrative in Exodus, seems to be communicating, just like in, in the narrative in, in Exodus, they're to have little with them. Why? There's a sense of urgency. There's a, there's a sense of which they're being compelled to go out. There's a sense in which God doesn't want them to be tied back to the nation of Egypt. They need to be ready to go as God commanded. And Look at what God is doing when he gives his mission of proclaiming the new exodus to his disciples. Take little with you. Be prepared. Be ready. Why? 
you're going to take the message of the new exodus to those who are enslaved. And friends, I might propose to you this morning that the greatest enslavement in all of human history is our enslavement to sin and rejection of God. And look at the preparation God gives his disciples as he makes them ready to proclaim this new Passover, this new Exodus, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've extended to us through Jesus. We thank you that in Christ and through Christ and by Christ, God, we have found life and that life more abundantly. We thank you for the perfect sacrifice that you, God, have made on our behalf through the giving of your son, Jesus. Would you take a few moments, friend, where you're seated today and reflect upon the preaching of God's word? Have you today experienced deliverance? Have you found redemption in Christ? Have you prepared your heart to trust in Christ, to believe in him? If not, would you trust in Christ this morning? Perhaps you're here today as a believer and we read this text together and we see God's faithfulness to his people. We see the way in which God protects his people. And perhaps you've been at a moment in your life in which you've questioned the goodness and the kindness of God. Would you be reminded this morning of this truth? Would you celebrate this truth? Would you, where you're seated this morning, thank God for this truth? Would you thank him for the redemption that he has provided you? In just a few moments, we're going to stand and collectively respond to the preaching of God's word by declaring this truth. Great is thy faithfulness. As we sing, friends, if you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. We will be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. Perhaps you're here today and you'd like for one of us to pray with you. That indeed your life would be lived on a daily basis, aware of God's salvation, that you would trust in God's provision for you, that you would, that your faith would be enriched and deepened. As we sing, we would delight in shepherding your hearts by praying for you. And thirdly, perhaps God has placed upon your heart that this is, that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with God this would be an opportunity for you to express your faith in being part of Woodlawn Baptist. God, as we respond to you now, may our responses be pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?